0: dearest friend, I received your letter of December the 25th, and am very glad to hear you are so comfortable. I should rejoice, if you had fewer perplexities, that you might have more agreeable sensations. Yet, if we look through the year which has passed, we have abundant cause for gratitude and thankfulness to heaven, both for public and private blessings. And if we have not all we wish, we have perhaps as much as we ought. It would therefore give me great pleasure to receive a cheerful letter from you. As 1798 gave way to 1799, though separated from her husband, Abigail Adams felt that they had much for which to be thankful from the past year. Little could any of them have known at the time the triumphs and the challenges that the new year would present. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. As always, I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Susan Stevenson of the American Epistles podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. Susan just launched her podcast, which aims to tell the stories of American history through letters, diaries, and journals written over the years by everyday Americans. I just finished listening to the first episode, and it was very powerful and well-researched. So if you haven't already, once you get done with this podcast, search for American Epistles on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or or by going to her website at american-epistles, that's E-P-I-S-T-L-E-S, dot blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, dot com. As discussed last episode, the Adams administration went in 1799 facing a Congress agitated by Adams' annual message. Though Adams had not gone so far as to name a new minister to France— he had indicated a willingness to leave the door open to a restoration of peaceful relations between the U.S. and the French Republic. This measure, intended to please everyone, had, as so often happens, pleased no one. The Democratic Republicans felt the peaceful overtures were just for show and that Adams and the Federalists were clamoring for war, while the Federalists felt that Adams was putting the nation at risk by appearing wishy washy. His message intended to bring the nation together only served to pull the factions further apart. What to do continued to weigh on the president's mind as new information came from someone newly arrived in the U.S. in mid-January. John and Abigail's youngest son, Thomas, had been serving the past few years as his brother John Quincy's secretary, first in The Hague, then in Berlin. But he had decided to get out from his brother's shadow and return back home to establish his own life. John Quincy lamented that, quote, he Thomas, had been a faithful friend and kind companion. It is with a heavy heart that I part with him. Abigail had arranged for a second cousin, Thomas Welsh, to take Thomas's place in Berlin, and on January 11, 1799, the 27-year-old Thomas disembarked in New York City and, after a couple of days in the city, took a 24-hour trip on a stagecoach to reunite with his father in Philadelphia. Thomas arrived at the president's house late in the day on the 15th and along with catching up on family news. Thomas provided his father with a wealth of information about affairs in Europe. Adams had already learned some from a packet of letters that Thomas had sent from New York City upon his arrival, that had arrived earlier in the day. And after reviewing that information, Adams had written Secretary of State Timothy Pickering, ordering him to consult with the other cabinet members, then prepare a draft treaty with France, and a quote consular convention such as in his i.e. Pickering's opinion, might at this day be acceded to by the United States if proposed by France. Adams reminded Pickering of the necessity of keeping this matter in, quote, inviolable confidence. But yeah, I wouldn't hold my breath on that if I were you, Mr. President. As we've discussed previously, the prospect of peace with France was the last thing that Pickering wanted to hear. Unfortunately for Pickering's martial desires, public opinion was starting to turn from the war drums. Just as Adams and the administration was slowly but surely receiving more encouraging news from the halls of Paris, so too was the public. Meanwhile, increasingly discouraging news was coming in from that other frenemy of America. The Jay Treaty had set up numerous joint commissions to decide on issues between the two nations. Though some would prove to be a success, the commission to consider claims related to pre-revolutionary debts would prove much more problematic. Its work had begun shortly after Adams assumed office, with the British representatives arriving in Philadelphia in April 1797. However, as described by historian Bradford Perkins, quote, the commission's business was very complicated. It had to decide whether legal impediments, usually state laws, Blocked the creditor's efforts, and whether the debtor was solvent when collection was attempted. If both questions were answered in the affirmative, the board scrutinized the wildly inflated claims of the British merchants and made an award. At first, the arbiters examined each case individually, but they soon became bogged down in details. Thus, one of the British representatives put forward a proposal of measures which would expedite the process. But since those measures would place more of the onus of proof on the U.S. to deny the claims, quote, the board became an acrimonious debating society rather than an arbitral commission. The commission would continue to meet through 1798 and into 1799, but the deliberations became more and more contentious until finally at the end of July, the American representatives would walk out of the room and the commission was dissolved without finishing its work. Though British Foreign Secretary Lord Grenville had sent word to Philadelphia that the British government desired a negotiated settlement of the disputes in the commission, word did not arrive in time before the final breach. Perkins asserts that, quote, the chief blame for the failure of the commission should fall on Timothy Pickering and British Minister to the U.S. Robert Liston. They stood on the sidelines while trouble developed and then plunged into the fray, not as mediators, but as participants. As so often in his career, Pickering allowed his emotions to blind his judgment. Unfortunately, Liston was equally unimaginative, and by the time he learned that Lord Grenville inclined toward a negotiated settlement, it was already too late. When Grenville heard of the final suspension of the board, he sharply pointed out to his subordinate that the whole affair was in striking contrast to the manner in which he and U.S. Minister to Britain, Rufus King, had settled problems of equal difficulty in London. Meanwhile, around the same time as Thomas Adams was returning to the U.S. bearing news of the possibility of peace with France, news was arriving from the Caribbean of an altercation between an American sloop of war and a British squadron. In December 1798, the USS Baltimore, while leading a convoy of American merchantmen, was stopped by a British squadron. As the squadron was the superior force, the captain of the Baltimore submitted to a search ordered by the squadron commander and five of the American sailors were impressed into the British Navy, while three of the American merchantmen were seized on the charge of quote-unquote carrying contraband. When Adams heard about the situation, he discharged the captain of the Baltimore from naval service for permitting the search and sent orders to all U.S. naval commanders that similar moves by British vessels should quote, be resisted to the last extremity. This affront even upset the Anglophile Pickering, who wrote to Rufus King asserting, quote, that the right of searching and stripping public vessels of war of their hands, if it exists at all, must be reciprocal, and it need not be asked whether a British naval commander would submit to it. Neither will ours. On February 1st, The Philadelphia Aurora published statistics that had been compiled by the Insurance Company of North America showing a greater loss to American shipping to British vessels than to French vessels in the past six months. The case for war with France was dwindling while public agitation against the British was building once more. The shift in the news further riled up Secretary of State Pickering and his head would hit the roof when he and Adams ended up back on the subject of Elbridge Gary had sent a report about his diplomatic mission to France, along with his correspondence with French Foreign Minister Talleyrand, upon his arrival back in the States on October 1st. And as with other important diplomatic documents and reports, Adams wanted to submit it to Congress for their review. As stated last episode, Pickering was determined not to give Gary an unchallenged forum for his talk of diplomatic resolution with France. And thus, Pickering decided to prepare a rebuttal to Gary's report. However, in order to prepare his reply, Pickering committed what would be seen now as blatant insubordination. In three different occasions, Adams asked that Pickering turn over to him Gary's correspondence with Talleyrand, but with Pickering refusing for nearly a month to turn it over. Not only did Pickering refuse not one, not two, but three requests from the president under whom he was serving, but he was also actively withholding public documents from congressional review Adams would finally have to drop the polite request and instead send his personal secretary William Smith Shaw to Pickering quote with an unmistakable demand for the papers Pickering was well aware that the Talleyrand Gary correspondence would only serve to further the push for peace with France and Pickering was determined to use his rebuttal to combat not only that idea but, as noted by Pickering biographer Gerald Clairfield, quote, Gary's credibility had to be destroyed. Thus, when he presented Adams with his rebuttal, after Adams sent over Gary's report to Congress on January 18th, Pickering had crafted as sharp of a dagger against Elbridge Gary as he could. According to historian Ralph Adams Brown, on the 19th, the two, quote, argued heatedly over Pickering's rebuttal with Adams defending his friend Gary. In later recollections, Adams said that Pickering's report was, quote, a most violent, false, and calumnious Philippic against Gary. I read it with amazement. I scarcely thought that prejudice and party rage could go so far. I told him it would not do. It was very injurious and totally unfounded. Thus, Adams put his foot as well as his pen down and went to editing Pickering's report. Again, from Adams' recollections, as he made his edits, quote, Pickering reddened with rage or grief as if he had been bereaved of a darling child. Pickering begged, pleaded, and raged for his report to be sent unaltered to Congress, but Adams refused. He would let the report go, but only with his edits, which would take some of the personal vitriol out of it. Thus, when Pickering's report went to Congress on the 21st, it achieved little except to further infuriate Pickering. He fired off numerous letters to other Federalists, including even General Washington, to complain about Gary, Adams, and the altering of his report. He was quickly moving into a position of opposition to the very administration in which he served. Pickering was not the only one chafing against the Adams administration. Two of the most prominent leaders of the Democratic-Republican Party, Vice President Thomas Jefferson and former Representative James Madison, were comparing notes on a regular basis from their respective positions in and out of government. As expected, Madison, after the release of Gary's report, concluded that it was incongruent with the drumbeat of war with France that the arch-federalists continued to sound and asserted that, quote, if truth shall be found to have been suppressed or misstated in order to trick the public into a war or an army, it will be one of the most daring experiments that has been made on the apathy of the people. As was being demonstrated, though, the people were far from apathetic. As discussed in episode 2.11, the Kierkegaardt in southeastern Pennsylvania were riled up against the land tax that had been imposed to pay for the military draw and in the end of 1798 and beginning of 1799, they were beginning to actively organize beyond just directing liberty polls. As it happened in the western part of the state during the whiskey rebellion, citizens started organizing resistance associations and militias and applying pressure on their neighbors, quote, who remained passive or neutral in politics by refusing to join. Tax assessors were finding it increasingly difficult to do their business in the area without being verbally assaulted and threatened. Township meetings in the first part of the year drafted petitions to Congress urging a repeal of the tax law. It all seemed reminiscent of what had happened a few years prior, and as had happened before, leaders were starting to emerge. However, there is only one that we must concern ourselves with a resident of Lower Milford named John Freeze. Freeze's father had immigrated to Maryland from Wales sometime around the middle part of the 18th century and had established himself in Montgomery County in eastern Pennsylvania. Despite coming from Wales, as noted by historian Paul Douglas Newman, Fries was of German ancestry, though, quote, How a German came to be a Welsh immigrant is a mystery, but his surname and his subsequent American experience reveal his probable German ancestry. John was raised bilingual, speaking both Deutsch and English, and married a German immigrant, Margaret Bruna. They moved to Lower Milford just before the Revolutionary War, and would establish themselves in the community, with John joining a local militia company and making a name for himself when, thanks to a warning from Margaret, John raised the alarm about a British light horse company taking the local farmer's livestock in the fall of 1777. By the time the Light started to agitate against the property tax in late 1798, John Fries was 48 years old and considered a leader in the community. He had been a Federalist up until that fall, but like others, he had taken a hard turn and was vigorously in opposition to the direct tax. Thus, when Freeze, at the end of January 1799, threatened the local assessor should he continue his work, the assessor came down with a strange illness that kept him from completing his tax assessments. Imagine that. That would not stop the representatives of the government, however, and another person was appointed to complete the assessments. Meanwhile, Fries and two others called for a meeting at a local tavern on February 8th to determine a further course of action. They ultimately drafted an association paper titled, in large capital letters at the top, Liberty, which over 50 citizens signed. And it was delivered to the local assessor as a notification of their intent that, quote, the valuation or measurement of the houses should not be submitted until the people should have further time to consider of it inasmuch as they considered it a grievance and were doubtful whether it was really authorized by law. The district assessor joined the local assessor at a meeting on February 11th to hear the complaints of the citizens of the area and offered for the people to choose their own assessor if it would resolve the conflict, but the locals would hear none of it. Their main problem wasn't with the individual, but rather with the fact that an assessment was taking place at all. As the month went on, the two who had been appointed to carry out the assessment in Lower Milford made themselves scarce, and the district assessor tried once more to reason with the locals, but to no avail. At this point, the local meetings were turning heated, and as government representatives attempted to read out the law to the citizens, they were shouted down, with one man reported to have, quote, stamped his musket on the floor and said, we have made a law of our own, and we are determined to support it. Rumors were starting to circulate that there was agitation in Virginia as well, and that 10,000 men were marching from the Old Dominion to join forces with the agitators in eastern Pennsylvania. It was all going downhill very fast. Meanwhile, Congress was getting flooded with petitions signed by around 20,000 Pennsylvanians demanding that the recent unconstitutional and unjust measures put in place by the government be revoked. However, the select committee appointed to respond instead doubled down and explained why the measures, which included not only the direct tax, but also the military buildup that it paid for and the Alien and Sedition Acts, were necessary for national security and asserted that all the measures were constitutional. The House, by a vote of 61 to 39, adopted the committee's findings. By hook or by crook, the federal government's work would go on and it would seek legal remedies to remove the impediments. U.S. District Judge Richard Peters issued warrants for the arrest of several citizens of eastern Pennsylvania who had obstructed the assessment for the property tax, and U.S. Marshal William Nichols would take the first 12 men into custody on March 2nd. Now, if you remember from back in episode 1.20, One of the issues during the Whiskey Rebellion had been that court summons for distillers who had not registered according to the law meant that the distillery owners would have to appear in court in Philadelphia, which was a burden on the individual citizens involved. Likewise, in this case, those arrested would be taken to the capital city for trial, which further enraged the Kikonaita when they learned of this. While Philadelphia was closer for them than it was for folks in the Pittsburgh area, it was still two and a half days away. Wasn't this a violation of the Sixth Amendment, which said that every citizen had a right to quote, a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed? While it would be in the same state, the supposed crime didn't occur in Philadelphia and the local public would not be able to attend. Further, a jury in Philadelphia would not constitute quote, a jury of their, i.e. the accused peers. They weren't kirkenite people in Philadelphia were Anglo-Americans. The Kierkenaita saw it as clearly a violation of their rights, yet another unconstitutional act being committed by a government more concerned with starting a war with France than ensuring the well-being of Americans. The agitated citizens would start cursing the head of the government, President Adams, as, quote, a damn rascal who told nothing but lies. Over the next few days, the arrest would go on as the district assessor organized his team to get the assessment of property in Lower Milford back on track. Funny enough, John Freeze would end up at a tavern that the assessor stopped into after completing their work the morning of March 5th and ate a peaceful lunch with him. At that point, he was unaware that they had started back up the assessments, but as soon as he learned they were back at work, he warned them, quote, not to go to another house to take rates. If you do, you will be hurt. As the men got into a back and forth, Freeze threatened to get, quote, 500 to 700 men under arms here tomorrow morning by sunrise. The actual number that assembled on the morning of March 6th was closer to 30-something men, but still, Freeze marched his force to Quakertown, where they joined up with another group at a tavern there. By a contemporary account, the group that had assembled in Quakertown were still milling around at mid-afternoon and were, quote, a great deal intoxicated, though John Freeze himself was sober. Unbeknownst to the group, the assessors had taken Freeze's threat seriously and decided not to carry out any work that day, but rather to go home. Unfortunately for some of the assessors, their route took them through Quakertown. When the mob spotted them, they attacked. Freeze ordered his men to halt, but it quickly became a drunken melee. One of the assessors escaped quickly, but Freeze and a couple of others made their way to the other in order to pull him out of the fracas and secure his safety. While Freeze would get flack for intervening on the assessor's behalf, he would act that evening to reassert his authority as the agitators met to determine what to do about the individuals who Marshall Nichols had arrested and was preparing to transport for trial in Philadelphia. The next morning, Fries would don his regimental uniform and would lead a force to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where the prisoners were being held. By mid-morning, Marshal Nichols was getting reports of armed men coming into town and arrested a few stray agitators who had thought they were supposed to rendezvous in Bethlehem rather than the prearranged spots out of town. He soon learned that a larger force was massing and preparing to march on the town, so he sent four deputies, two Federalists and two Democratic Republicans, to attempt to convince the militia forces to abandon their plans. The militia in turn sent a three-man delegation back with the deputies to Bethlehem to meet with Marshal Nichols. They were able to get two of the folks arrested that morning released, but Nichols refused to release prisoners for whom Judge Peters had issued warrants. That afternoon, the militia force, which numbered around 130 to 140 armed men and around 250 unarmed supporters, marched into Bethlehem, where they gathered around the Sun Inn, where John Freeze met with Marshal Nichols to negotiate freeing the prisoners on bail. In what has to be the wisest move ever made, considering what had happened in Quakertown the day before, a local tavern owner decided to keep his bar open, and thus, while Nichols and Freeze talked, as noted by Paul Douglas Newman in his account of the afternoon, quote, liquor flowed out the door to the increasingly inebriated and obnoxious crowd. At points, Fries had to break away from the negotiations to go outside to tell the crowd to calm down. And at 4 p.m., an attempt was made to storm the sun in, which ended up with the attempt being easily thwarted and the leader of the attempt, quote, launching into a tirade of cursing and obscenities. Again from Newman, quote, Fries emerged at the door and shouted, silence, which brought an end to the matter. But it was quickly becoming apparent that a resolution had to be found soon, or else all hell would break loose. As Fries and his associates had witnessed the day prior, if the crowd got too riled up, the situation could quickly spin out of their control. Fries approached Nichols once more and told him that, quote, they would demand the prisoners under force of arms, but that they hoped to avoid any bloodshed. Finally, seeing as he had little choice, nickels relented, the prisoners were freed, the agitators dispersed, quote, and freezes rebellion, peacefully concluded without gunfire, fisticuffs, or bloodshed. Wait, what do you mean concluded? You mean there's not even going to be anything like the Battle of Bower Hill or any tarring and feathering? What kind of a rebellion is this anyway? Naturally, this isn't the end of this story, as there would be major ramifications but for now, let's just take a moment to examine what just happened. An armed force of citizens circumvented the authority of the federal government. Some, notably in the opposing Democratic-Republican Party, would see this as a continuation of the rebellious, revolutionary spirit of 1776. Others, namely those supporting the Federalist majority in government, would have a different take on Fries's rebellion. What's clear, though, is that party agitations are starting to take on a deeper dimension in terms of domestic as well as foreign policy. Moreover, the threats to the Adams administration were much closer geographically to the Capitol than those domestic agitations that occurred during the Washington administration. In a world where the French Revolution was still recent news, it is easy to see why rumors and fears began spread through the halls of government and in Federalist circles about Jacobin-esque plots and the possibility of an American reign of terror. The danger was quite real in their minds. Despite the concerns, the business of government proceeded in the late winter and early spring of 1799, and unbeknownst to those in Philadelphia, two events abroad would serve to support the change in foreign policy that Adams had been contemplating for months. For the first, we must turn our attention back to the Mediterranean region, where we last left French General Napoleon Bonaparte stranded in Egypt. Though his reports back to the Directory were glowing, Napoleon's control of Egypt was tenuous at best, with heavy fighting continuing months after French forces landed, and with his troops and officers feeling highly demoralized. Napoleon attempted to find a diplomatic solution to ease his position as he entered into a secret correspondence with the British fleet still off the coast of Alexandria, as well as with officials in Syria and the Ottoman government in Constantinople. The British, however, were more focused on forming a new coalition against the French and thus had little motivation to negotiate with the head of the Army of the Orient. The Ottoman Sultan Selim III, meanwhile, had been insulted by the French invasion of his territory. And rather than buy Napoleon's story that the invasion was to protect Egypt and the Ottoman Empire from being carved up by the other European powers, Selim instead declared war on France on October 9, 1798. Meanwhile, Britain spent the latter part of 1798 and early 1799 negotiating with the Habsburg Empire, Prussia, Russia, the Kingdom of Naples. Basically, anyone who had a bone of some sort to pick with the French Republic. After months of negotiation, a provisional Anglo Russian convention was signed in St. Petersburg, Russia, on December 29, 1798, thus beginning what has been dubbed the War of the Second Coalition. More powers would join Britain, Russia, and the Ottomans in the struggle against France in the coming year, but the important thing to note for our purposes is that the pressure was ratcheting up for the Directory government. Before we go too far down the European history rabbit hole, let's turn back to the Caribbean for our next major event. As stated earlier, attacks on American shipping in the Caribbean were on the increase, but so too was the ability of the American government to address it. As the new U.S. naval frigates were being put into commission, they were being dispatched by Secretary of the Navy Stoddart to various points to prevent attacks on merchant ships. The USS Constellation, under the command of Captain Thomas Truxton, had been launched from Baltimore, Maryland on September 7, 1797, but the final fitting out of the ship was interrupted by the yellow fever epidemic of that year, and thus, the ship would spend the winter iced in the Patapsco River, and Captain Truxton would spend the time recruiting 220 seamen for the ship so that it would be ready to launch at the spring thaw. After its shakedown mission in the summer off the coast of the southern U.S., Truxton was ordered to take a small squadron to set up a base of operations on the island of St. Kitts, quote, and cruise as far leeward as Puerto Rico, paying attention to St. Martin's and that group of islands called the Virgin Gorda. And wherever else between St. Christopher's and Puerto Rico, your judgment shall direct you. The strategy of deploying a squadron to the Caribbean was to be the first outward projection of American naval power since the founding of the government under the Constitution, and the squadron led by the Constellation would set out from Norfolk, Virginia, along with a convoy of merchant ships, on December 31st, 1798, bound for the Caribbean. When they arrived in the Leeward Islands, Captain Truxton would learn of the capture of the U.S. naval schooner retaliation by two French frigates, Le Volontaire and Le Sojourn in November. According to historian Ian Toll, the surrender of the retaliation, quote, was the first time since the end of the Revolutionary War that an American man of war had surrendered to an enemy. With this knowledge in mind, Truxton proceeded with his mission with vigor. In addition to organizing convoys to ensure the safety of American shipping, Truxton would also take the Constellation on patrols in the area. After engaging with a small French privateer between Barbados and Martinique, the Constellation would face its greatest test yet, when, on February 9th, a large ship was spotted to the south, headed westward. They would close to within signaling distance, and Truxton would order first the British private signal, then the U.S. Navy's private signal to be made. But there was no response from the other ship to either, confirming that it was, in fact, a French ship, Le Sergent as a matter of fact, one of the two ships that had captured the retaliation in November. Le Saint-Jean's captain, Michel-Pierre Berron, was in fact hoping to avoid a battle, but seeing that the Constellation was looking for a fight, ordered the French tricolor to be raised and a shot to be fired. As the day went on, the Constellation continued to close on the French frigate, and the battle was fully engaged just past 3 p.m., though the Constellation suffered some damage from the first volley from Le saint the French ship took the brunt of the damage, including casualties, and, as noted by Toll, very quickly, quote, her officers seemed to be losing control of the remaining crew. Within an hour, Bellot was signaling his surrender. When the two captains met, Belleau warned Truxton that this battle would cause the French government to declare war on the United States. Truxton dismissed the threats, since the French had already taken American naval vessels. If there was to be a war the French were the ones who had started it with their aggressive actions. As Truxton wrote to Stoddard in his report, quote, the French captain tells me I have caused a war with France. If so, I'm glad of it, for I detest things being done by halves. The capture of Le Chagent would have an effect on Franco-American relations, but not quite what Capitaine Ballon might have imagined, and would be a key moment pointed to by later generations as evidence of America's destiny to surpass the older European powers. While this podcast does not ascribe to any concepts of American exceptionality or manifest destiny, we will see as we go on how U.S. naval victories such as this one did help to establish the legitimacy and sovereignty of the U.S. government in the eyes of European powers as well as in the minds of its citizens. As all these events were going on abroad, the continued case for peace was being made in the U.S. General Washington received a letter at the end of January from his associate Joel Barlow, an American at the time residing in Paris, with Barlow telling the former president that, quote, the point that I wish to establish in your mind is that the French Directory is at present sincerely desirous of restoring harmony between their country and the United States on terms honorable and advantageous to both parties. Washington sent this letter to Adams on February 1st and impressed upon him that, quote, I have conceived it to be my duty to transmit it to you without delay. From the known abilities of that gentleman, i.e. Barlow, Such a letter could not be the result of ignorance in him, nor, from the implications which are to be found in it, has it been written without the privity of the French directory. This wasn't just the questionable Elbridge Gerry talking here. This was someone for whom Washington himself was vouching. Further, Washington volunteered to be an intermediary to deliver whatever message Adams wanted sent back, especially, quote, if there is reason to believe that it would become a mean, however small, of restoring peace and tranquility to the United States upon just, honorable, and dignified terms, which I am persuaded is the ardent desire of all the friends of this rising empire. If this all ended peacefully, so much the better, in Washington's mind he could resign this new commission and spend the rest of his days in peace at Mount Vernon. What Hamilton might think of this is for another day. Before the month was out, however, President Adams would completely upend everything with a shift in foreign policy, which we'll discuss next time in an episode I'd like to call The Plausible Probability of Preserving the Peace. Thanks so much again to Susan Stevenson for providing the intro quote for this episode, and be sure to check out her work on American Epistles. I'm including a link on the source notes page for this episode, which can be found at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y.com. If you have any questions or comments for me, feel free to send them on via email to presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can connect to me via social media on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, on Twitter at presidencies89, or on Instagram at Presidency's Podcast. Again, all one word. Thanks to all of you for listening. Until next time, take care, dear friends. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.